Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I remember it very well. It was a crisis. Well, a mini-crisis. The Dunbar churches together every year held a procession that went along the main street of the town and people followed with palm branches behind a man riding on a donkey, reenacting the whole Palm Sunday event. And it stopped the traffic. It was a big deal. The police had to be out to control the excited crowds. But this particular Palm Sunday was coming and we had no donkey. We really needed a donkey. And you have no idea how hard it is to find a donkey when you need one. But without the donkey, no procession, no traffic being stopped. So the hunt was on. Find us a donkey. Which of course was a very good echo of that first Palm Sunday. The presence of a donkey, a prerequisite for that procession. And the question is kind of begged, what if the people who had been asked for a loan of their donkey had said, no, you can't have it? What if they'd held back, said, no, this is our donkey, you're not getting that? Then the whole thing would have fallen flat. The disciples said, the master has need of it. And that's a kind of defining moment for any Christian life. It's the response we make to those things that the master has need of that sets the tone and the pace and the effectiveness of the church's witness. The master has need of it. What does he have need of from us? That summons comes across a whole range of areas right across the centuries. The call to ministry rings in the hearts of men and women still, taken by surprise at God's insistent tap on their shoulder. But the master has need of this. The call to leadership within the church is very pointed today. A recent General Assembly heard these words. The greatest need facing the church at this time is the identification and development of godly, effective, mission-minded leaders. The master has need of leaders. And the need for resources to sustain the mission and effectiveness of the church, that never goes away. The opportunities there are many. Our home can sometimes be needed as a a focal point of fellowship and outreach and ministry. He may ask us to make it available as a place of healing and prayer and welcome and hospitality. The master has need of it. He may ask us about our time. Gobble, gobble, gobble. What priority his work, his schedule 
the inconvenience of service and ministry within the life of the church. Your Wednesday nights, the master has need of it. Your Thursday nights, the master has need of it. What do we say? Now, of course, none of those offerings of what we have make any sense unless he first has our commitment and our love. They are the prerequisites of effective church life. Commitment and love. Of all the graces, of all the fruits of faith and spirit, the one I've come to place most worth upon is the ministry of being there, of turning up, of giving ourselves the power of our presence. That's certainly part of what the Lord asks for, needs from us. The certainty that we'll be standing up and being counted. They say the world is run by the people who turn up and the world is won by those who turn up. It goes back a long way, this initiative of making available, of giving what is needed, providing the bare bones of the miracles that will unfold. Taking that first step, setting the ball rolling with our renunciation, our action. Remember the boy with his loaves and fishes? What if he had said, no, you can't have that, that's mine, I'm holding on to that. No miracle, no story. What if St. Paul had said, you're not having my intellect and my sweep of thought, keeping that for myself. Wilberforce with his sense of raw justice burning in him like a fire and the Lord says, I have need of that to change the world. Shaftesbury with his compassion. My old Sunday school superintendent, Mr. Reed, a plumber in Glasgow. And the Lord said, I need you to work with children. And he did and many lives touched and changed. And you know people, I'm certain, who if they had said no, stuff in your life would not have happened that was good. Maybe a BB leader or a scoutmaster or a guide leader or a guild committee member or a mentor or a teacher. They let go. They said, the Lord has need of this. He will have it. And that can sometimes be just very practical things. The need of our support for the work of the church as we monitor our giving, enabling impossible things to become possible, dreams to be realized because they've been resourced by commitment and common sense and a willingness to give what the master needs. The Lord has need of it. That's all we need to hear to make the difference. And what did he need the donkey for anyway? Well, some might have tried to dismiss it as gesture politics, a publicity stunt, the visual symbol connecting his story with Zechariah on the donkey riding through the ruins of the smoking city. The drama, the statement he was making was unmistakable. The gloves were off now. He was going to do it. He was going to go into the city and be king. Here and now, this day, this week, it was all kicking off. Zechariah was one of those fabulous, inspirational people who refused to let hope die. He was either a cockeyed optimist or a man of profound faith. 
He certainly based his conviction on the sound principles of the promises that God gives. The promise that he would never forget his commitment to Israel. He would never renege on his covenant bond with his people. So even as Zechariah wrote, surrounded by the debris of Israel's history, the shame and despair of exile, the broken-backed city, because of his faith in God, he is driven to, he is required to sound the trumpet of hope. They will come home. The ancient city, now an embarrassing collection of overgrown ruins, will be rebuilt. The land occupied by foreigners will be theirs once more. One day, as sure as God is God, one day the dispersed people will return and they will rebuild the broken walls. They will rebuild the broken walls and restore the shattered majesty and the humiliation of that long exile will be forgotten in the bright new day of God's tomorrow. It was a message that fitted so many phases of Israel's history. Time and again, she had been a doormat for the, the great empires that swept across the ancient world. All too often, she'd found herself victim, target, prisoner, invaded, vanquished, needing to hear a word of hope. And this is Zechariah's ministry in his day for his people to be the herald of that new possibility. But he kind of changes the game, Zechariah. The symbolism he uses highlights his understanding of the nature of that new day. His hope that maybe lessons have been learned. Instead of the swaggering arrogance and self-confidence that had led to the nation's downfall, the future king, in the restored nation, would set a tone of humility and trust in God. He would choose the way of peace and turn his back on the props and the pretensions of power that had marked the vaunted ambitions of previous generations. His would be a kingdom committed to peace, a king whose glory was in his humility and his humanity and his compassion. The tired, failed old ways are over. The new thing begins with this new king. As Zechariah rides into that crushed city in a symbolic act of humility, he invites the people to some fresh thinking. He sets up a signpost and invites the nation to look elsewhere for their hope and their security and their national integrity, not the armories and the arsenals and the suits of armor and the chariots and the fortresses. Something new is on offer. The old dispensation has been gently shunted into oblivion. And the one who comes, comes in peace, empty-handed and vulnerable. Symbolism is important. We know that a peace protester pops a flower into the barrel of a gun on 
outside the White House. A young man stands alone and defenseless as the tanks thunder towards him in Tiananmen Square. There's a sound of cheering when the first crack is made in the Berlin Wall. We lived through those things. We remember those iconic moments. that stopped the world in its tracks. A new situation, a, a critical turning point in history, a, a moment that will change the landscape forever. And no one could doubt that day. No one could doubt for a second that day when the carpenter from Nazareth rides into the city on the back of a donkey. It's a defining moment, acting out the dream of Zechariah, making it live riding into the ancient city to inaugurate a new beginning. He was spelling it out in great big letters. Messiah, King, Saviour, hope of the nation. In your face, before your very eyes, for all to see, a declaration of intent, the old ways, the legalism of the Pharisees, The tired old jokes of history, war, power, dominion, domination, control, cruelty. All under threat now from this man and his compassion. On this day, a not so quiet throwing down of a gauntlet. His way against the rule makers and the rigid self-righteous certainties. And the narrowness and the unbending, ungracious discrimination and condemnation and judgment. Palm Sunday was the beginning of the end game. This would be a final conflict. What's what's to be the emphasis? Harshness or compassion? Priggishness or profligate generosity? Who would win the day and where would it end? Christ knew how it would end, where this road was taking him. And we, with the benefit of hindsight, can sense the slight hollowness to the celebrations. There would be consequences if he went there. There would be consequences if he did this. Hard to believe that this joyful procession moving slowly down the valley, led by the Lord of the dance, could, in a matter of days, be quite forgotten, replaced by another crowd, a different crowd, another procession, moving slowly down the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Tears. When it's not anymore a man on a donkey who is the focus of everyone's attention, but a man stumbling and falling under the weight of a cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.